Well, as I'm sure you're aware, I'm sure it's clear that the intention of this gradual path is the culmination in the realization of Nibbana. And each part of it is really essential for our development. Um, <clears throat> so that that's so that that happens, and um, we are now really talking about a lot about samadhi and the training of the mind, the the development of the higher mind, as it says in the suttas. So I thought tonight I would just take these two short suttas and talk about what's in them that helps us to uh, put causes and conditions in for deepening our meditation and also from that realizing Nibbana. So the first one is called Assemblies. And the Book of Threes in the Buddha Nikaya, number 95. And this is the Buddha saying, Mendicants, these are the three assemblies. What three? An assembly of the best, a divided assembly, and a harmonious assembly. And what is an assembly of the best? An assembly where the senior mendicants are not indulgent or slack, nor are they backsliders. Instead, they take the lead in seclusion, rousing energy for attaining the unattained, achieving the unachieved, and realizing the unrealized. And those who come afterwards follow their example. They too are not indulgent or slack, nor are they backsliders. Instead, they take the lead in seclusion, rousing energy, pertaining the unattained, achieving the unachieved, and realizing the unrealized. This is called an assembly of the best. This isn't the assembly I'm interested in tonight, by the way. And what is the divided assembly? An assembly where the mendicants argue quarrel and dispute, continually wounding each other with barbed words. This is called a divided assembly. And what is a harmonious assembly? An assembly where the mendicants live in harmony, appreciating each other, without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes. This is called a harmonious assembly. And when the mendicants live in harmony like this, they make much merit. At that time, the mendicants live in a holy dwelling, that is, the hearts released by appreciative joy. When their joyful rapture springs up, when the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, they feel bliss. And when they're blissful, the mind becomes immersed in samadhi. 
It's like when it rains heavily on a mountaintop and the water flows downhill to fill the hollows, crevices, and creeks. As they become full, they fill up the pools. The pools fill up the lakes. The lakes fill up the streams, and the streams fill up the rivers. And as the rivers become full, they fill up the ocean. This is in the same way when mendicants are in harmony, appreciating each other, without quarreling, blending like milk and water, and regarding each other with kindly eyes, they make much merit. At that time, the mendicants live in a holy dwelling that is the heart's release by appreciative joy. When their joyful rapture springs up, when the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, Tranquil, they feel bliss, and when they're blissful, the mind becomes immersed in samadhi. So, what I like about this is, first of all, um, calling back to the theme of today, sort of the arising of mudita or appreciative joy, and how that is so much easier in a harmonious living situation. You know, obviously this doesn't just apply to monastics. Um, This is a value that is important for all of us. And of course that's not easy to make your living situation, your relationships with the people you live with, they're not always going to be harmonious. But how do we make harmony a higher priority? Um, What I see in this sutta is, okay, this way of living together, where we really put an emphasis on appreciating each other, and we're able to solve differences without quarreling. So maintaining as much as possible a tranquil environment. And then based on that tranquil environment and the focus on appreciating one another's good qualities, we have this um, much greater opportunity to have a peaceful mind and go deeper into bliss. Um, samadhi, uh, opening up to, of course, um, insight. So in, in our little sangha, we definitely have placed high priority on this um, working um, <coughs> at really living together in harmony. And you can think about what, you know, it, that takes some effort. But it also has um, an implication on our own internal um, environment as well. You know, this is uh, hopefully a motivation or encouragement to work through the, the unrest we find inside. The, disharmony that we have internally so that it makes it easier uh, to really become calm and at ease. 
And we talked about virtue and how important that is because it's another aspect of this. But then the, the aspect of relationships and really um, putting some effort in there. The next sutta, Opportunities for Freedom, is a bit of a similar theme, not so much about our living situation, but about some of the things we can consider um, bringing more and more into our life or into our habits around how we can, again, uplift the heart. So these are really various ways of uplifting the heart. So this one talks about five opportunities for freedom, and in this sutta it takes it all the way to um, the complete ending of defilements and full freedom. So there are these five opportunities for freedom. If a mendicant stays heedful, ardent, and resolute at those times, their mind is freed, their defilements are ended, and they arrive at the supreme sanctuary for bondage. So this is enlightenment. So in the first case, the teacher, of course that would be the Buddha, or our respected spiritual companion teaches Dhamma, to a mendicant, to a practitioner. And that practitioner feels inspired by the meaning and the teaching in that Dhamma. No matter how the teacher or the respected spiritual companion teaches it, feeling inspired, joy springs up. Being joyful, rapture springs up. When the mind is full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. When the body is tranquil, one feels bliss. When blissful, the mind becomes immersed in samadhi. And then it carries it further. It says this is the first opportunity for freedom. And if the practitioner stays with that, um, the words here are heedful, ardent, and resolute. At this time, then their mind is freed. Their defilements are ended and they arrive at the supreme sanctuary from bondage. Obviously, it's not given a lot of detail there. There are some stages that one goes through. But it's the, the Buddhist, you know, in many places talks about this sequence, as you can see, this idea that we, we become inspired, we become joyful, and then there's this following through these stages of joy, happiness, rapture, tranquility, and stillness of mind. And from that comes awakening. So this, in this case, you're listening to the Dhamma, and you're inspired, so inspired, you kind of 
really um, filled with this, this inspiration and joy. In the second case, it's not a teacher teaching you, but the practitioner themselves teaches the Dhamma in detail to others as they learned and memorized it. And just teaching it makes them inspired by the meaning and the teaching in that Dhamma. And no matter how they've taught it in detail to others, as they've learned and memorized it, it's this feeling of inspiration, bringing up the joy and going through that same sequence. This is a second opportunity for freedom. In the third case, nobody's teaching you, you're not teaching someone else, but you feel inspired um, reciting the teachings to yourself in detail as you've learned and memorized it. And then inspired by that, this sequence falls into place, the third opportunity for freedom. In the fourth case, the mendicant thinks about, or the practitioner, thinks about and considers the teaching in their heart. They're not reciting it, but they're feeling it, examining it with the mind as they've learned and memorized it. And that's what brings the inspiration. That's the fourth opportunity. And the fifth, fifth one, none of those previous things are happening, but the a meditation subject as a foundation for aversion is properly grasped, attended, borne in mind, and comprehended with wisdom. And that's what we've been talking about for the last few days. It causes one to feel inspired by the meaning and the teaching. no matter how that meditation subject is, as a foundation for immersion is properly grasped, attended to, born in mind, and comprehended with wisdom, and the joy springs up, and the rapture springs up, and with a mind full of rapture, the body becomes tranquil. You feel bliss, and you're immersed in samadhi, the fifth opportunity for freedom and all we're told here is that we stay with it. Just stay with that. Stay present. And that's kind of what you see in other suttas where from there knowledge and vision arises naturally. And the sequence to the ending of the defilements. So one sutta somewhere else talks about doing this, um, any of these five, I think it gives them in the same order, as you're dying. So 
Maybe someone else is there to talk about the Dhamma. Or maybe you talk to someone else about the Dhamma. This happened uh, with this lay follower of the Buddha, Chitta, the householder. He was, he was dying, and, um, and actually some, a deva came and was talking to him, and the people caring for him couldn't see the deva. And he was saying something back to the deva, and they said, Oh, you're, the, the caregivers, you're, you're starting to lose your mind, and you're talking. He's like, I'm not losing my mind. This deva is asking me this question. <laughs> but anyway... Um, the idea being, this is something we can actually practice. Um, give yourself Dhamma talks. You know, memorizing Dhamma that you really feel inspired by, and being able to reflect on it. Um, and then, you know, as in the, when they talk about this in the Sutta, as the person is dying, they can give themselves this inspiration and actually, at the time of death, um, awaken. So when you think about your own life situation, you might notice you might have something in particular that immediately strikes you as something that really brings about disruption and unrest. You know, the opposite of the harmony and the peacefulness and the inspiration and the heart filled with the Brahmaviharas. And I would just invite you to consider how that might evolve into something more peaceful, more um, supportive. And sometimes, of course, that means big changes in ourself because we can't expect the people around us to necessarily change. That's really up to them. That's their work. And, um, but how do we want to change the way we relate? Or is there a way to bring more, maybe more understanding and acceptance? Letting go of wanting things to be different than they are? Or maybe something in terms of a change in priorities? around what we want to engage in and what we don't want to engage in. I think it's possible, easily, uh, what I want to say, easy isn't quite the right word, but for each of us, we can probably notice these areas in our life that we might be able to affect in a positive way, particularly if we bring a lot of loving kindness and the other Brahmaviharas to our contemplation around these challenging areas in our life. One thing you might consider 
which I've been thinking about for, I mean, this has been years. Is it possible for you to come into contact with anyone in the world without any negativity? Um, I think there might be a clearer way to say that. At this point, I don't think, I can't think of anyone, I can't just run into somewhere and have, that would cause me to have any negativity arise. And that has taken a long time. But I think it's something to consider, like, who in the world do you have a negative uh, sort of reaction to, and how might that be changed? Not because they are changing, but because you understand more deeply, or your boundaries are such that you feel protected enough, or what? what would it take to not have any negativity arise. Do you think that's asking too much? (laughs) (laughs) Might be a tall (laughs) hope. But you you probably got some time to work on it. I mean, wouldn't it be great? Um, And then if if something does happen where negativity starts to develop, how do we turn it around? And I don't think the world supports this notion. I think the world thinks that that's impossible, but it's not. You know, like when the when, well, when the Buddha talks about, you know, and we have one one sutta where the Buddha is. Um, you know, confronted by this person who's basically wanting to pick a fight with him, and he's like, you know, what I teach doesn't create conflict with anybody. And in another place he says, I don't argue with anybody. People argue with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, this is something that I think we can um, develop in our life and emulate the Buddha with this. And as we do, as things change in the way that we relate to the people in our life, people in the world, situations in the world, um, the situations in our in our immediate experience, there's more and more peace and stability. And it's easier and easier to bring the mind to stillness and peace. So when we talk about the gradual training, it really it really takes in every aspect of life. And it must. Because everything that we are um, affected by affects this training and the training that the development of our practice affects everything in our life. 
And so we want this development of our practice to affect all these relationships. And sometimes you don't even have to hit it head on. Um, I got married when I was 18. I know that sounds a little crazy these days. But I grew up in a small town in um, the Midwest, and it wasn't that uncommon. Unfortunately, um, there was some abusive stuff and um, alcoholism and a few things that weren't um, healthy to stay around, especially for my children. So we split up after uh, 11 and a half years. And a lot of things had happened that were hard to let go of. But when I started to practice the Dhamma, and I had before that gone through many different waves of therapy and, you know, trying to lay that all to rest, and including uh, doing some um, volunteering for the uh, Better Women's Network. So trying to understand that whole dynamic. And um, so there's, you know, layers and layers of practice and years of, of working on me. And then I hadn't really thought a lot for quite a while about him. But an opportunity came that I was going to see him again. My daughter graduated from um, graduate school, and we were both going to show up at the graduation. And I didn't know how that was going to feel. And it was really, really surprising to me because when I saw him, I just had this flood of compassion. That's all that was left. And it was such a, I was so grateful for that feeling. And there have been times over the decades, I think if we had stayed married, it would be 50 years already, more than 50 years. So it was a while ago. And over the years, different times of interacting with him, there's an incredible kindness that comes up. And this is what I would wish for every human being, you know, that whatever has happened, that there can be that kind of resolution to it, where there's just nothing left. There's, there's no grudge left anymore. There's no negativity. And it, it, this can happen without really even working on that thing. It's about developing, you know, that understanding of Dhamma, that developing the, the Brahma Viharas, really working with those. And, you know, it's kind of like the, 
um, the development of the path in these different aspects support each other. So you develop the Brahma-viharas and that helps you develop the samadhi. You develop the samadhi and it helps to develop the wisdom. You develop wisdom and it helps to develop the samadhi. And it's just like whatever way you find in to development, it's going to help carry the other things along. Even if you're not necessarily paying that much attention to that, I think, sometimes anyway. So it's, it's something I would just offer for your reflection. And it's very important, I think, to not, um, not force it. Like, I wanted to let go of um, animosity and anger and um, I mean there are certain things that are so deep in the body you don't even know they're there until something happens and you freeze or whatever but it's like even if no matter how hard you try, you can't put it down. Maybe the best way is just set it aside, give yourself space, and work on the rest of the path and see what happens. I think the intention in the mind, if we have this intention, this wish, or this... Um, I would almost call it prayer to be without negativity towards anyone and then just set that aside. I think that helps enormously to guide our choices in how we practice. And, you know, the, the last thing, um, the things to watch out for when taking in this kind of an idea is to not be hard on ourselves. So we don't want to add any pain to the suffering that's already there, but to give ourselves the support, the love, the compassion, and the appreciation of our own good intentions and our own practice so that there is this growth and development in our own ability to be tolerant and forgiving and compassionate towards towards others.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.